Hello, and welcome to the Respiratory Care Podcast for July 2013. This is Dean Hess along with Sarah Moore. Again this month, we have a very full issue with 14 original research papers, two reviews, three editorials, three case reports, a teaching case, and several letters. We will cover the first eight original research papers in some detail and then briefly discuss the others. Our editor's choice paper this month is Albuterol Delivery by Four Different Nebulizers Placed in Four Different Positions in a Pediatric Ventilator in Vitro Model by Berlinski and Willis. They compared in vitro lung deposition of albuterol aerosols generated by four different nebulizers placed in line in four different positions in a pediatric ventilator model. Two brands of continuously operated jet nebulizer powered with 6 liters per minute of oxygen, an ultrasonic nebulizer, and a vibrating mesh nebulizer were compared when placed at the ventilator, the humidifier, the Y-piece, and 30 centimeters before the Y-piece. The jet, ultrasonic, and vibrating mesh nebulizers were operated for 5, 15, and 15 minutes, respectively. The tested solutions contain 2.5 mg, 5 mg, and 7.5 mg of albuterol. The ventilator settings were pressure-regulated volume control mode, tidal volume 200 mL, breathing frequency 20 breaths per minute, PEEP of 5 cm water, FiO2 0.4, inspiratory time 0.75 seconds, bias flow 2 liters per minute, and heat humidifier at 37 degrees centigrade. The circuit was connected in a series of 5.5 millimeter cuffed endotracheal tube, a deposition filter, and a lung model. Albuterol was measured by spectrophotometry. The jet and vibrating mesh nebulizers performed best when placed at either end of the ventilator or humidifier, and worst at the Y-piece. The ultrasonic nebulizer performed best at the humidifier and worse at the Y-piece. The vibrating mesh nebulizer outperformed the jet nebulizers at all tested positions, and the ultrasonic nebulizer when placed at either the ventilator or the humidifier. Lung deposition increased for the jet and ultrasonic nebulizers, but not for the vibrating mesh nebulizer when increasing the loading volume while maintaining the nominal dose. The authors concluded that the vibrating mesh nebulizer was the most efficient device. The nebulizers were more efficient when placed at either the ventilator or the humidifier, and less efficient when placed at either the Y-piece or 30 centimeters from the Y-piece. There is no question that the type of aerosol generator and the position in the ventilator circuit are crucial to determine aerosol delivery during mechanical ventilation. Berlinski and Willis used an in vitro model of pediatric mechanical ventilation to compare delivery of albuterol generated by four different nebulizers placed in line in four different positions. The vibrating mesh nebulizer was found to be the most efficient. The nebulizers were more efficient when placed at either the ventilator or the humidifier, and less efficient when placed at either the Y-piece or 30 centimeters from the Y-piece. 
As stated by Mansour in his editorial, these data can be used to either choose to utilize a different nebulizer position, a different fill volume, and or different loading dosage to enhance aerosol delivery to mechanically ventilated patients. Bubble nasal CPAP, early surfactant treatment, and rapid extubation are associated with decreased incidence of bronchopulmonary dysplasia in very low birth weight newborns. Efficacy and safety considerations is by Friedman and colleagues. The objective of this study was to determine whether introduction of bubble nasal CPAP, early surfactant treatment, and rapid extubation in a community-based neonatal ICU reduced bronchopulmonary dysplasia. This was a seven-year retrospective single-institution review of respiratory outcomes in 633 very low birth weight babies before and after introduction of the combined CPAP strategy. Coincident changes in newborn care were taken into account with a logistic regression model. The average percentage of very low birth weight newborns with BPD decreased to 26% from 35%, reaching a minimum in the last year of 22%. When other coincident changes in newborn care during the study years were taken into account, very low birth weight babies in the post-CPAP years had a 43% lower chance of developing BPD, with an odds ratio of 0.43. Decreases occurred in mechanical ventilation and the percentage of infants discharged on diuretics and on supplemental oxygen. Among the subset of extremely low birth weight newborns, improved respiratory outcomes in the post-CPAP years as compared to outcomes in the pre-CPAP years included an increase in the percentage alive and off mechanical ventilation at one week postnatal age a more rapid extubation rate, a decrease in the median days on mechanical ventilation, and a decrease in the percentage with BPD or died. Post-CPAP extremely low birth weight babies had a statistically significant decrease in retinopathy of prematurity, an increase in low-grade intraventricular hemorrhage, and a decrease in ductal ligations. The authors conclude that a program of bubble nasal CPAP early surfactant treatment, and rapid extubation in a community-based neonatal ICU reduced BPD after adjusting for concurrent treatments. Current literature has been inconsistent in demonstrating that minimizing the duration of mechanical ventilation in very low birth rate newborns reduces lung damage. Friedman et al. evaluated nasal CPAP, early surfactant treatment, and rapid extubation in very low birth weight newborns. Using this approach, the average percentage of very low birth weight newborns with bronchopulmonary dysplasia decreased from 35% to 26%. There was also a significant decrease in retinopathy of prematurity, an increase in low-grade intraventricular hemorrhage, and a decrease in ductal ligations. 
As Clore and colleagues point out in their editorial, this study underlines the point that prevention of BPD requires a multifaceted strategy and reminds us that, following the institution of strategies to improve an outcome, it is prudent to monitor for occurrences of unexpected increases in morbidity and mortality. Next, we have the paper by Seobel. Calculation of Physiologic Dead Space, Comparison of Ventilator Volumetric Capnography to Measurements by Metabolic Analyzer and Volumetric CO2 Monitor. Calculation of physiologic dead space using the Bohr equation requires measurement of the partial pressure of mixed expired CO2 by exhaled gas collection and analysis, use of a metabolic analyzer, or use of a volumetric CO2 monitor. The Draeger XL ventilator is equipped with integrated volumetric CO2 monitoring and calculates CO2 production. The authors calculated mixed exhaled PCO2 and dead space from ventilator-derived volumetric CO2 measurements of CO2 production and compared them to metabolic analyzer and volumetric CO2 monitor measurements. A total of 67 measurements in 36 subjects recovering from acute lung injury, or ARDS, were compared. 31 ventilator-derived measurements were compared to measurements using three different metabolic analyzers, and 36 ventilator-derived measurements were compared to measurements from a volumetric CO2 monitor. There was a strong agreement between ventilator-derived measurements and metabolic analyzer or volumetric CO2 monitor measurements of mixed exhaled PCO2 and dead space. The bias and precision between the ventilator and metabolic analyzer measurements for mixed exhaled PCO2 were minus 1 millimeter of mercury and plus or minus 1.5 millimeters of mercury respectively. For dead space, the bias and precision were 0.02 plus or minus 0.03, respectively. For the ventilator and the volumetric CO2 monitor, the bias and precision for mixed exhaled were minus 0.19 and plus or minus 1.58 millimeters mercury, respectively. Between the ventilator and the volumetric CO2 monitor, the bias and precision for dead space were 0.01 and plus or minus 0.03, respectively. The authors concluded that mixed exhaled PCO2 and therefore dead space can be accurately calculated directly from the Draeger XL ventilator volumetric capnography measurements without the use of a metabolic analyzer or volumetric CO2 monitor. Measurement of dead space in mechanically ventilated patients may be helpful to assess overdistension, to assess the severity of pulmonary embolism, and to identify a cause of failed extubation. A number of studies have also reported that a high dead space is associated with increased mortality in mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS. Siebel et al. found that mixed exhaled PCO2 and therefore VD to VT ratio can be accurately calculated directly from the Draeger XL ventilator volumetric capnography measurements without use of a metabolic analyzer or volumetric CO2 monitor. 
As Deckert writes in his editorial, the available evidence is inadequate to adopt dead space measurements as a standard of care for mechanically ventilated patients, and further work is needed in this area. Next, we have the paper, Disparity Between Mainstream and Sidestream End Tidal Carbon Dioxide Values and Arterial Carbon Dioxide Levels by Peck Demir and colleagues. The aim of the study was assessment of agreement between end tidal PCO2 measurements performed by mainstream and sidestream methods with arterial PCO2 values. This was a prospective observational study. A total of 114 subjects were enrolled in the study. End tidal PCO2 measurements using mainstream and sidestream methods were performed simultaneously with the arterial blood sampling in subjects who were observed in the emergency department and required arterial blood gas analysis. Agreement between the end tidal PCO2 measurements and the arterial PCO2 values obtained from blood gas analysis were evaluated using the Bland-Altman method. 60 subjects with a mean age of 61 years were enrolled. The mean arterial PCO2 was 35 millimeters mercury. The mean mainstream end tidal PCO2 was 22 millimeters mercury, and the mean sidestream end tidal PCO2 was 25 millimeters mercury. Bland-Altman analysis showed an average difference between the mainstream end tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2 of 13 millimeters mercury. The average difference between the sidestream end tidal PCO2 and arterial PCO2 was 10 millimeters mercury. The authors concluded that the end tidal PCO2 obtained by mainstream and sidestream methods were significantly lower than the arterial PCO2 values. There was essentially no agreement between the measurements obtained by two different end tidal methods and the arterial PCO2 values. This study assessed agreement between end tidal PCO2 measurements performed by mainstream and sidestream methods with arterial PCO2 values. The study was conducted in spontaneously breathing adults in an emergency department setting. There was essentially no agreement between the measurements obtained by two different methods and the arterial PCO2 values. This study should cause pause when considering the use of end tidal PCO2 as a proxy for arterial PCO2 in spontaneously breathing patients. Estimation of tracheal pressure and imposed expiratory work of breathing by the endotracheal tube, heat and moisture exchanger, and ventilator during mechanical ventilation is by Uchiyama and colleagues. They measured estimated tracheal pressure at the tip of the endotracheal tube, which they called tracheal pressure, and calculated expiratory work imposed by the endotracheal tube, the HME, and the expiratory valve. They examined imposed expiratory work of breathing in patients under continuous mandatory ventilation mode and during spontaneous breathing trials. Their hypothesis was that imposed expiratory work of breathing would increase with heightened ventilatory demand. They measured airway pressure and respiratory flow. They estimated tracheal pressure mathematically imposed expiratory work of breathing was calculated from the area of tracheal pressure above PEEP versus lung volume. They examined imposed expiratory work of breathing and imposed expiratory resistance in relation to the mean expiratory flow. 
The study included 28 patients in CMV and 29 during an SBT. During both CMV and SBT, as mean expiratory flow increased, imposed expiratory work of breathing increased. Levels of imposed expiratory work of breathing were affected by endotracheal tube diameter and ventilator mode. The reason for increasing imposed expiratory work of breathing was an increase in expiratory resistance imposed by the endotracheal tube and HME. The authors concluded that, during mechanical ventilation, imposed expiratory work of breathing should be considered in patients with a higher minute ventilation. Exhalation is normally passive and expiratory resistance is not usually considered in mechanically ventilated patients unless they have obstructive lung disease. These authors found an increased imposed expiratory work of breathing due to an increase in expiratory resistance imposed by the endotracheal tube and the heat and moisture exchanger. They conclude that imposed expiratory work of breathing should be considered in patients with higher minute ventilation. I would add that it should also be considered in patients with obstructive lung disease where it could potentially contribute to additional air trapping. The next paper is Disease Management Programs for Patients with Asthma in Germany, a Longitudinal Population-Based Study by Mehring et al. The objective of this study was to evaluate the disease management program for asthma in Bavaria using routinely collected subject medical records. This was a longitudinal population-based study encompassing over 100,000 disease management program participants between 2006, when the program began, and 2010. The prescription rate of oral corticosteroids dropped from 15.7% in 2006 to 13.6% in 2007, and from 7.5% in 2008 to 5.9% in 2010. The proportion of subjects with asthma education increased from 4.4% to 23.4%. Utilization of an individual self-management plan increased from 40.3% to 69.3%. Hospitalization decreased from 2.8% to 0.7%. The authors concluded that, in the first four years of the disease management program, there was an improvement in pharmacotherapy and inpatient self-management. The proportion of subjects requiring hospitalization decreased. This suggests that the German Disease Management Program for Asthma has been effective in enhancing the quality of care in regard to an improved symptom frequency, adherence to guidelines, pharmacotherapy, and hospitalization. Over the first four years of the disease management program evaluated in this study, there was an improvement in pharmacology and patient self-management, and the proportion of subjects requiring hospitalization decreased. These are important findings, which I think have implications for disease management programs anywhere in the world. We published two papers this month related to obstructive sleep apnea. The first... Home Unattended Portable Monitoring and Automatic CPAP Titration in Patients with High Risk for Moderate to Severe Obstructive Sleep Apnea is by Tedeschi et al.
The aim of this study was to compare home unattended portable monitoring and automatic CPAP titration with attended in-laboratory analysis in a sample of patients with high risk for moderate to severe OSA. They enrolled 131 subjects who were randomly divided into two groups. The home group was diagnosed and titrated at home, and the laboratory group was analyzed in the sleep laboratory of the hospital. Diagnostic evaluations were carried out with portable monitoring at home and with polysomnography in the sleep laboratory. Titration of CPAP was performed with the same automatic CPAP device in both groups. At the end of the study, 19% of subjects had dropped out of the home group and 14% had dropped out of the laboratory group. There were no significant differences among groups in both baseline and with CPAP values of apnea hypopnea index, oxygen desaturation index, and total sleep time with SpO2 below 90%. In the home group, the therapeutic pressure values reached at the end of each unattended home titration night were similar. The authors concluded that home diagnosis and titration approach should be considered in a subset of patients with OSA. A single unattended titration night is sufficient to determine a therapeutic pressure. Our second sleep apnea paper is the comparison of CPAP and oral appliances in treatment of patients with OSA, a systematic review and meta-analysis by Lee and colleagues. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis to compare the outcomes of oral appliances with those of CPAP in treatment of patients with OSA. Relevant studies were retrieved from electronic databases up to and including September 2012. The main outcomes were Epworth Sleepiness Scale Score, health-related quality of life, cognitive performance, blood pressure, ASI, arousal index, minimum SpO2, percent REM sleep, treatment usage, side effects, treatment preference, and withdrawals. Fourteen trials were included in this review. The results demonstrated that the effects of the ESS score, health-related quality of life, cognitive performance and blood pressure of oral appliances and CPAP were similar. Pooled estimates of crossover trials suggested a significant difference in favor of CPAP regarding AHI, arousal index, and minimum SpO2, while pooled estimates of parallel group trials showed a significant difference in favor of CPAP regarding AHI and percent rapid eye movement. Moreover, oral appliances and CPAP yielded fairly similar results in terms of treatment usage, treatment preference, side effects, and withdrawals. The authors concluded that CPAP yielded better polysomnography outcomes, especially in reducing AHI, than oral appliances, indicating that oral appliances are less effective than CPAP in improving sleep-disordered breathing. However, similar results from oral appliances and CPAP in terms of clinical and other related outcomes were found, suggesting that it would appear proper to offer oral appliances to patients who are unwilling or unable to persist with CPAP. The aim of the study by Tedeschi et al. was to compare home, unattended portable monitoring and automatic CPAP titration with attended in-laboratory analysis in a sample of patients with high risk for moderate to severe OSA. Interestingly, 
there were no significant differences between groups in both baseline and with CPAP values of apnea hypopnea index, oxygen desaturation index, and total sleep time with SpO2 below 90%. Lee et al. conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis to compare CPAP and oral appliances in the treatment of patients with OSA. CPAP yielded better polysomnography outcomes than oral appliances, indicating that oral appliances were less effective than CPAP in improving sleep disorder breathing. However, similar results from oral appliances and CPAP in terms of clinical and other related outcomes were found, suggesting that it would seem appropriate to offer oral appliances to patients who are unable or unwilling to use CPAP. We published six more original research papers this month. In a cross-sectional study, Harita and colleagues evaluated depression in individuals with COPD. They found probable depression in 38% of these patients. A number of physical parameters were associated with depression in this group of Japanese outpatients with COPD. Collard et al. measured hemoglobin levels in 309 subjects with COPD and chronic respiratory failure prior to initiation of non-invasive ventilation. And these subjects undergoing treatment with non-invasive ventilation and long-term oxygen therapy, high hemoglobin levels were associated with better long-term survival. We published two papers this month related to ventilator-associated pneumonia. Perez-Granda and colleagues assessed knowledge of and adherence to guidelines for prevention of VAP among physicians, nurses, and students in adult ICUs. They found that a simple, easy-to-complete questionnaire enabled them to rapidly evaluate individual knowledge and clinical practice in prevention of VAP in a large institution. Restrepo et al. assessed differences in the bacterial etiology of early onset versus late onset VAP. There were no significant differences in the prevalence of potential multidrug resistant pathogens associated with early onset or late onset VAP, even in subjects receiving prior antibiotics. Thus, empiric therapy for early onset VAP should also include agents likely to be effective for potential multidrug resistant pathogens. Airway acidification plays a role in disorders of the respiratory tract. Davis et al. hypothesized that the inhalation of glycine buffer would alkalinize the airways without compromising lung function or causing adverse events. They found that alkalinization of airway lining fluid is accomplished with inhalation of glycine buffer and causes no adverse effects on pulmonary function or vital signs. Manual ventilation in the delivery room is provided by devices such as self-inflating bags, flow-inflating bags, and T-piece resuscitators. The objective of the study by JRM and colleagues was to compare the effect 
of type of manual ventilation device on response to resuscitation among preterm neonates born at less than 35 weeks gestation. They found no significant differences in effectiveness between the T-piece and self-inflating bag in preterm resuscitations. This month, we publish reviews on unplanned extubation in the neonatal ICU and on complications leading to sudden cardiac death in pulmonary arterial hypertension. Our three case reports published online are related to adult inflammatory myofibroblastic tumor of the trachea, bilateral micronodular pulmonary infiltrate, and pneumothorax caused by aggressive use of an incentive spirometer in a patient with emphysema. Our teaching case, published online, is round pneumonia in a 50-year-old man. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.